The Pull is brought to you by the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, the world's premier annual gathering of bicycle frame builders and frame building enthusiasts. The 2019 show will take place March 15th to 17th at the Sacramento Convention Center in Sacramento, California. We hope to see you there. I've been writing about cycling for more than 25 years. The people who have most captured my interest, the people I've returned to for quotes and interviews again and again, have a few things in common. They are intense and driven. They may be a part of a larger team, but they tend to do their work in isolation. And without fail, they are chasing a concept of quality that they themselves have defined. I wrap these elements up under the concept of craft. That is, what it means to be good at something. When I'm around people who get up each morning with the belief that their best work is ahead of them, not behind them, I know I'm in my tribe. The Poll is a podcast devoted to one-on-one interviews with people who are artisans in their field. We will focus on what it means to get up each morning and go do a job. What they learned about doing that job, not in the first five years they did it, but what they learned about that job in the last five years of doing it. I hope you enjoy the show and will follow it on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your media. My name is Patrick Brady. Welcome to The Pull. Richard Sachs is arguably the best-known bicycle frame builder in the world. He began his training in England with Whitcomb Cycles in 1973 before hanging out his own shingle a few years later. His work has been featured in nearly every bike magazine on the planet and in such prestigious publications as Outside and Cigar Aficionado. I met Richard by phone in the winter of 1992. I was working on an article about all the frame builders in New England and what, if any, specialties they had, how much their frames cost, and other details like how long the wait was to receive a frame. During that phone call, I used a plural pronoun, and Sachs, a man known to be precise in his use of language, stopped me and said, there is no we. It's just me. I hadn't realized that I was talking to a one-man frame shop. So little did I know. In the decades that have passed since that phone call, we've gotten to know each other a good deal better. And as we've come to understand the work each other does, a conversation emerged, one that truly led to this podcast. We've long since stopped talking about frame angles and bottom bracket drop. We don't talk tubing diameters or paint colors. What we talk about when we're on the phone or in person is what it means to do good work, what is required to do good work. 
and enduring question that we talk around is how you keep recharging the battery so that each day you can approach your mission with vigor. With that, I'd like to welcome Richard Sachs to the poll. Well, hey, Richard, it's awfully good to talk to you, man. It's been a little while. Yeah, hey, Patrick, how you doing? I'm in Deep River on the phone looking out my kitchen window talking to you. So now, May in Connecticut, what does that look like? <laughs> it's like January 115th right now. Um, we've had a couple of warm days, but for the most part, um, I could still be wearing thermals and wind pants and not be overdressed most days. I, um, I've been back on my bike probably for about two months and I've only like worn short sleeve type garments for maybe five or six days. It's beautiful, but it's not like really hot yet. Oof. Yeah. That was one of the things I, I struggled with during my time in new England, that there was kind of no such thing as spring. Just suddenly one day summer would be, would arrive and you'd be much happier. Okay, so yeah. as I explained to you before, this podcast is all about craft, and I figured you were a great place to start because uh, of the many frame builders I know, you are arguably, if not easily, the most introspective of the bunch. So what I'd like to do is start off with just, let's talk about the process of building a frame for our listeners who don't really know what goes into it, you know, just walk us through a, a brief survey of what happens from you receiving to the order to shipping off an assembled bike. Well, um, let's see. I'll skip through the courting process. You know, when <laughs> yeah. a client wants or thinks he wants to uh, get in the queue. But once the order is confirmed and I have like a small deposit and they finally get to it, um, I already have a sense of things because I try to prepare myself for what I'm going to do in the next couple of weeks before they arrive. And if I if I like pull an order and it's for this guy like Andrew who's in the Midwest, then I kind of know from looking at the numbers that this guy, you know, he wants a Richard Sachs. He has this position that he's assimilated on the bikes that he uses. Um, I have a mental image of what that bike's going to be. I I don't know if it's a sense or if it's intuition or just experience or some of all of that. But you, you know, and you're your your listeners probably don't know, but I don't use CAD or formulas or anything. I just basically see a picture. Well, I'm explaining this to you. I see a picture of what that rider and the dimensions that he gave me looks like, and I try to fix that picture above and over what I consider a Richard Sachs bicycle that would be the correct size or size range for him. So for me, it's pretty easy. I I explained it a week or two ago as like music, but without notes. You just have to um, trust that you feel something mm -hmm. and just start playing. Um, <laughs> I know there's people that think uh, that's a little bit too abstract. That can't possibly be you know, what you do, but it really is what I do. And I got to this point over time <clears throat> by basically 
trying to look at other, you know, bike makers and users, you know, the racing crowd, and also channel what I thought was the right information because you never know what's right until you try it yourself and if it works fine, if not, you tweak it or discard it. But over time, you develop your own version of what it is you think of as the perfect way and you kind of borrow from it, you kind of chisel away a few things that kind of got in the way and you end up with um, a process. So for me, um, basically, you know, I look at a guy, I look at his you know, information, I make a judgment call, and I hope for the best, because you can't wheel it back in and say to the, you know, the shop owner, hey, this thing doesn't fit, or something's not right. Uh, that's never happened with me. It might have happened in the aftermarket, but, you know, basically I give the guy what I think he needs, and... Um, uh, uh, well, that's going to decide what the batting average is. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna start now by by jumping out of sequence. You know, you said something important there, and I remember my first phone interview with you back in, I believe it was 1992. I said something about custom, and you said, "Well, you know, my bikes aren't custom; they're made to measure." And at the time, I was like, "What?" Say? And, okay. you know, you explained that to me pretty brilliantly. Talk to us about what that difference is, because I'm not sure how many of our listeners know it, you know, at least from your well, perspective. Well, I'll probably jump around a little bit, but the term custom in my business, I think, is a word that was used and misused and then adopted over time, going back to the bike boom, the early 70s, the, you know, the gas embargo, the fitness craze, that whole era, everybody wanted or seemed to want a 10-speed bike. You know, those things with the skinny wheels and the handlebars that turned down and the ones like they use in Europe. And before you know it, the entire conversation in the bicycle industry was the 10-speed bike. Now, the... uh, you know, stingrays and uh, beach cruisers notwithstanding, this is all before the mountain bike was even like part of the vernacular. So everybody was riding around on 10 speeds. And then you had people who wanted like better bikes talking about custom bikes. And that's where the term became, I think, part of the like conversation again. So my feeling is that it's m- misunderstood. Uh, back then, you didn't go to people and say, I want this from this column, and I want those two things from this column, and I want it to look like this and ride like that, and I'd like to be able to put fenders on just in case, and I also want to use this for racing on the weekends, and I also like, you know, six shades of gray and uh, a little blue. You, you just didn't do that. I mean, you might have done some of that with some people, but by and large, the bikes that we all thought back in those days that were custom were not custom. Uh, at, 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 the, at, the, at the in the most literal way, they might have been made to order. In other words, if you went to like a Colnago or a DeRosa or like a French guy or an English guy, and he concluded based on the information that you guys exchanged that your saddle height needed to be 76 centimeters, um, give or take. 
he'd probably make you a bike that was in the vision of how he thinks his bikes should ride so that you could also like establish a 76 centimeter saddle height and everybody'd be happy so right. that's basically not custom that's the the order precedes the build so it's like made to order or made to measure so me um I've always been hung up on the Italian methods, and I've been to Italy so many times, and I've never seen a, anybody do anything custom because they basically would tear the sheet up and say, this guy's getting a 56 because, like, he won't know the difference anyway. And then the guy gets a 56, and he's happier than anything because he thinks he got a custom bike, but the guy gave him what he thinks his 56 should be, and there you go. But, like, I'm going back 45 years or more you know, to to give you the fodder for sure. this, like answer, but I also like look heavily at um, like the fashion world where there are truly makers who are custom, and that's a guy you go to with a like a white sheet of paper, and any fit, any fabric, any amount of buttonholes, cuffs, no cuffs, center vent, side vents, no vents big lapel, whatever it is, whatever you want, he makes it. That's a custom tailor. Sure. Um, a bespoke tailor or like a made-to-measure tailor would be a little less like wide open, and he'd make you what is his style, but he would make it to fit you. Because, God, like this guy labored for so long to have his own brand. If you tell him you want like a Ralph Lauren jacket with like oh i don't know homer's pants or you know uh calvin klein peg uh, ankles whatever i'm making this up because like as yeah. much as i look at fashion i don't like no shit about it <laughs> so i um he'd think like get out of here so over time i've tried to like like to use the word again channel uh, a situation in which I can make the bike that I feel so strongly about is the correct bike for the use and, and for the rider's morphology, but not compromise it by having like a, you know, a head tube that's too long or, you know, like uh, putting the wheels in a strange place because the guy's worried about toe clip overlap or God knows what. Well, that goes so, to a story you told me once about uh, U.S. a buddy of yours and a U.S. national team rider, if I recall correctly, Rudy Sroka. Oh, yeah, Rudy, yeah. Um, tell, talk about what he asked for and what the result of that was. Well, this was back when I was still a little bit more flexible <laughs> than I ended up being the moment I realized, you know, flexibility is not really all that it's trumped up to be. So we had this club, we had this team, and Rudy was one of my teammates, club mates. And he was already, like, at that point, a national level, you know, elite level cyclist. There was really no pro class then. So, you know, he was like on the national team. He was only one of the better riders in the country. And several times he podiumed, you know, at the, at the, you know, at the nationals and well, they they didn't call it elites then, but it was cat one. So there was a point at which he got, um, his second, it might've been his third Richard Sachs. And, you know, I was just making whatever these guys wanted because first of all, they were my friends. Second of all, I didn't really have the stones to like be able to articulate why they were what they were saying they wanted made no sense to me because I was like new and I was supposed to be like making bikes to order and I was just trying to like fill those shoes. But there was always this doubt, or eventually there was this doubt. So there was this one bike I made for Rudy that I still have the paperwork for, 
he wanted this bike designed this way with these tubes, with this bottom bracket height, with these chain stay lengths, these angles, whatever. And I thought, great, it's Rudy. Make him a bike. And I did. So he won a lot. He uh, succeeded immensely a lot in on that bike. But he also got summoned by the Federation or whatever it was called back then to do the Tour de Lavenir. I think it was 78 or 77. I think. Probably 78. I forget. One of those two. And, you know, that back then was um, the, the Amateur Tour de France. Most yeah. people wouldn't know that name, but no matter. The it was Tour a big of the Future. Deal. Yeah, exactly. That was probably one of the between the milk race, the Tour de l'Avenir, and the Peace race, back then, that those were the pinnacle of um, you know stage races for amateurs. So he goes over there. And he has this like disastrous experience in long road races, back to back days, on the bike I made him, the bike that he had so much success with in America. And he came back and he told me the story that his coach then there, you know, for the Federation was Mike Neal. And Mike said, look, the reason you're not like, get, you know, the reason you can't do this is because that bike is so poorly designed for the conditions that we're doing here. So if, and, and, and like so many years have passed, but I think the, his words or, or his um, sentiments were this, don't ever come back to this race with that bike if you find out that I'm the coach or something to that extent. So Rudy related that to me. I, I didn't feel too hurt about it because, you know, we're, we're still friends, as a matter of fact, and he knows this story because I've told it enough. But, you know, there was nothing wrong with the bike. It was just the wrong bike for the wrong situation or for that situation. And that's the point at which I said to myself, like, that's it. That's the last time I will make a bike for anybody uh, when they tell me what they want, you know, from end to end. So from that point forward, um, which I think at this point might be 78 or 9, um, I take only two or three measurements, saddle height, reach, setback, that's it. I don't care about any of the other stuff. Like you say you want a crit bike, basically like I put cotton in my ears and I don't even hear it. But the conversations still ensue because like I don't make this I don't make a bike for for an event. I make a road bike. You can use it throughout. Now, in, in 2018, that that's kind of a strange thing to say because now we have gravel bikes and all sorts of things. But through the years, and we're talking like several decades here, you know, to me, a road bike is a road bike is a road bike. Once you sit on it properly, as long as the bike's designed well for the conditions. You can do anything on it, and I still feel that way. You know, it might be a little bit too fragile for going down, like you know, a gravel descent, but you could always put in different wheels. But the design and the layout will be sufficient because um, there's really only a certain amount of ways to do things right, and I feel like I've kind of ended up in you know the at the at the convergence of like the decisions that would produce that bike being right, you know, for each client. So fascinating stuff. Now, 
to my eye, you know, what I know about the process of being a frame builder, a really critical part of the process of, uh, of building the frame is brazing the tubes into the lugs. Um, I've noticed that your bare frames don't have drips and smears of silver on the tubes, which is exactly how my frame that uh, someone helped me build a few years back looks without paint. Um, it, yeah, it just it, it's it's got all these smears uh, from the rod and whatnot. What what is it that developed in your control of the process so that we don't see things like that? Well, you know, <clears throat> on one side, the answer could be photo editing. <laughs> 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 I wouldn't I, would, I wouldn't show you anything that I didn't want you to see. But, you know, that's really not the reality. The reality is uh, when the stuff's on the outside, it's not doing anything. So why would you put it there? And then you'd say, well, I didn't put it there. It just went there. But I think that's where practice comes in. And the practice has to be done before there's a label on the bike. That's kind of ass backwards in 2018. But that's not my problem to solve anymore. I, I did my best, and you know that ship sailed. But the reason that the work is clean and not brazed and then cleaned and sculpted so that it looks clean afterwards, the, the answer to that's manyfold. First of all, you, you kind of have to you kind of have to know what you want the result to be before it becomes a result. You almost have to like start willing your hand-eye coordination, the f- heat source, the flow of the filler metal, you know, the top, the bottom, the side, you know, the other side, uh, the joint, you know, the, the shoreline, whatever length it is and whatever decorations are on, you know, the lug, if you're talking about lugs, you, you basically have to see it done before it can be done. So if you make a mental image of like the physical act of lighting the torch and standing around long enough so that it's preheated and you have the flux at you know the consistency that you want. If you if you if your mind is preordained to want to see the result that would make you feel like you did a good job, eventually you will do a good job. Of course, you have to you know do a fair amount of brazing so that you can dial out some of the like imperfect um, uh, physical hand-eye coordination sequences that you know don't give you what you want. But I also think that part of the equation, and you probably will agree with me on this, is you have to be arrogant. Um, you have to be so arrogant and so self. Um, self-confident. Is, uh, what? Self-confident. Well, I was going to say self-deluded because I did <laughs> say self-deluded. I'm so, I'm so self-absorbed with the fact that, like, if something went sideways and it didn't come out looking, I mean, looking and being the way I wanted it to look and be, I'd destroy it before I would try to like fix it because it's like you know, once you set a standard, like going below it and thinking, geez, I'm going to sell this bike for nine or $10,000. And here I am like 
all thumbs today. What's going on? It's like, it's simply not worth it. And you still have those days, but as time passes, the fewer and further between. But I think that feeling so arrogant for me, I mean, other people can use their own words, but like I go in there thinking like, you know, this is my, well, it's kind of like going to the, well, it's kind of like going to the gambling table and knowing that you can't possibly lose. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't gamble. So like for me, it's a wrong uh, uh, metaphor, but you, that, that's that's how I feel. I just, I mean, uh, I just feel like, you know, like it, it's, it, it, that's mine. You know, yeah. It's, it's mine. It's my, it's my, it's mine to win. Just go in there, you know, hit one out of the park. When you're done, <laughs> light a cigarette and just, you know, tell yourself how, how good you are. <laughs> before you know it, you might believe it. Certainly. No, I, I totally believe you about that. And that, that segues perfectly with my next question. So some years back, you shared with me an interview that you ran across with Thomas Keller. Might have been in the Atlantic. So Keller, the executive chef of what is arguably America's most famous restaurant, the French Laundry. Um, in it, he talked about what you learn from doing something over and over. Now, Keller was talking about scrambling eggs, but I think one of the reasons you shared it with me is that it applies just as much to heating up steel tubes or playing with verbs all day long like I do. Uh, I'm curious to know what you know now as a builder that you learned about the craft, not in your first 20 years, but in your last 20 years. You know, what has changed for you? What has evolved? Um, how have you elected to, to define your process differently than what you were doing in, say, you know, 1998? Well, I'm big on practice. So everything I said to you before about, like, log edges and shoreline and arrogance and, like, you know, clean brazing, believe me. I, I I have like burned, not burned. I have I have braised more. If everything I ever braised was actually a bike, I'd probably make fifty percent more bikes than I've actually produced. Because like a lot of times I'll just come in, or I would have come in like in the seventies and eighties, and even the in the nineties, just line up a bunch of lugs and a bunch of dropouts, and just for the sake of it, just braise them. And they wouldn't go to anything. There would be inventory that wouldn't get used. That was like me investing in my own, um, developing my own intuition. Because Mm -hmm. I knew that eventually, if I did this, I would be it. Um, it's kind of abstract, but you know, you want, you, you want this thing to be like, like an extension of like the, the thought that you have for what it's supposed to be. So practice is essential. And it's not about like putting the task under the microscope to see what the task is all about. The task is comprised of like 20 separate tasks. And before you know it, like you're going so deep into the process that it's not even about like 
raising a lug or s- slotting a stay so that a dropout fits it, or like thinking about alignment, or even thinking about what this has anything to do with a client who's paying you to do this. It is like, um, it's just basically you, you want to get into the metal and um, you, you want to get in there and flow with the, the molten filler material to see where this stuff is going when it disappears from your, 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 your eyesight because eventually it goes inside something and out some, the other side of something mm-hmm. else. And like if you spend enough time with it, as I have, you end up like, it's not about like, oh, road bikes are 73 degrees or silver brazing is better than brass brazing or, you know, frames built in jigs are better than frames built without. It's like, I'm so far the other side of that, that the second 20 years, especially the last, you know, 10 or so, uh, and I've used the word a lot in my writing, I've been trying to deconstruct everything so that I could go in there and feel like I've never done this before because it's like so liberating to just go in there and not even think you just pick up the materials and just let like this other person who's like outside of you do the work. I mean, literally that's not what's happening. I don't want to sound, you know, like too um, out there. I mean, I actually don't Mm -hmm. care how I sound anymore, but, in all fairness, the people who might be um, like thinking, like, what, 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 what channel are we listening to? It's like just the practice, you know, scrambling eggs like all day long, or whatever the article about Keller was, um, whatever it had to do with, you know, that is part of the repetition. I, I like I, I have called it repetition routine and relentlessness because eventually you're not building a frame you're building like parts of parts of parts of frames and after two or three days whatever it is that you decide to budget for the work that you're doing and charging for it becomes a bike or it becomes a frame but I'm so mired in the smallest part of a sub-assembly that that's where the focus is, not like, you know, what color is this going to be after I, you know, after it cools down. So I don't know if that's made any sense, but that's the way I look at it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. That brings me to another question I have. The last time I saw your shop, um, you know, you had portions of several frames in motion and you you have talked on several occasions how you're in the habit of building building multiple frames at the same time um you you told me that it's really helpful to be able to do one process multiple times rather than changing each process as you move around the frame um a is that still your method and b i'm curious like when you sit down to do uh, a bunch of dropouts and chain stays, how do you prevent there being any difference in the quality of the brazing on that very first one from the very last one? How do you prevent that? I don't know. Let's call it a warm up. Well, once you have quality, you, well, if you don't recognize quality minus one, then you shouldn't be, cashing those checks so god forbid if i line a bunch of things up 
the first one might not be the worst and the last one might not be the best, but at some point if in the middle of it all you see something like um, um, like going sideways again, um, to use that term, uh, you just pull it out and chuck it, you know, like throw it in the, you throw it someplace else, you don't use it. But for me, if I had to think about like, you know, going in and like doing those uh, calisthenics that, so that like by the time, you know, like I got to the third one, you know, I was back to where I should be. Uh, that, that wouldn't be too cool at this point in my life. So sure. uh, the reason I do the batch brazing uh, is simply because of the attention span. I just, most of my bikes are not that different from each other that if I was going to line up a bunch of um, orders and like some of them were 56s and some of them were 54s and one was a 62, there'd be certain like processes for each one that the only difference between all of them would be the length of the tube. Um, and of course, you know, the angle because I have to set the fixture so that, you know, everything is in where it's supposed to be for for the client. But once I get things tacked up and I have a bunch of like, you know, main triangles around, if I just breathe six of them up at a time, I don't know, it's it's cooler. And I also think that and I was talking to a fellow in England the other day, um about this because he, he didn't really know the, 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 the past that, you know, Whitcomb Cycles had and he found out that I was like part of that triangle. Um, that family of um, makers. Uh, when we when we were there, Peter and I, um, we were lucky because the people at Whitcombs were not like artiste frame builders. They were basically laborers who happened to make bikes, and those bikes happened to be decent, and they happened to be good-looking bikes. So they were thought of as being like custom or high quality and all that stuff. But the environment that we worked in was so bare bones. And it wasn't that you know they they could have had fixtures they could have they could have had a lot of tools but they, that they didn't but they didn't but their but their but their stance at the bench was this is a job and at the end of the day I leave and I come back tomorrow there wasn't a whole bunch of like pontificating about creative spurts and like inspirations and I I don't have them used today so I'm not sure I should turn the torch on so we we basically came out of that and over time I watched in in America people look at frame building as some kind of creative process as some kind of like like higher calling that you know is is more important and better than industrial made and i think i don't know it doesn't make sense to me and it's probably because of the way i came into it at the front end watching these men do this incredibly intricate and beautiful work without ever sweating the details so um for me the batch brazing you know not getting too personal with each order, uh, trying to stay a bit detached from the um, fact that I'm actually making something and just going in there and making it. I think that, well, for me, that's a, a helpful um, tactic. Neat, neat. Fascinating stuff. Now, uh, you're, you're not the same young buck uh, who learned this craft uh, in your 20s and 30s. Um, I'm curious, you know, how has aging 
begun to affect the process of building. Has it affected it at all? Well, it hasn't affected the process of building. I wear readers now so that when I do close-up work, I could actually see. So um, that fills me with pangs of anxiety because my <laughs> beloved uh, red uh, wayfarers that I used to use all the time, um, you know, like I had like 20 or 30 pair of those things. I can't really use them anymore to braise because I need, you know, um, uh, I need glasses with lenses in them that and let, let me see more than right. I normally do. So that's the only thing that has been, that's the only thing that's changed. But over time, there's like I maybe said before, you, you end up developing, developing this sense that, you know, this is yours to grab. You just go in there. You don't even think about it. You know exactly, you know, the, the fixtures and the tools that you use to measure things, they take care of the bicycle design. The actual fabrication, you know, the, the parts that have to do with hacksaws and files and torches and, you know, flowing metal, um, filler metal at, you know, whatever it is, 1,200, 1,400 degrees, that, that's all within me. So I never look at it as though, what am I doing now? Or, uh, I, matter of fact, the best I can do for myself and for the person paying me is to not think about anything, to just go in there and just start swinging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so last question. One of the hallmarks of chasing a craft is that there's invariably a piece of the work that is more satisfying than the rest. You know, I've run across loads of frame builders who can't stand dealing with customers. Um, I, I find that sort of amusing, but that's a separate issue. You know, for me, as a writer, I don't really love research. Well, once I've collected all the material, you know, what is the research? I dig digesting it and letting ideas percolate. Mm-hmm. However, there's nothing that satisfies me like sitting down to the blank screen and just digging into the writing. I'm curious, is there a part of being a frame builder that satisfies your creative urge, your, your, you know, whatever it is that fulfills you as, um, as a frame builder, it's, you know, yeah, just more satisfying than the, than the rest. Well, you know me, Patrick, I'm, I'm not going to answer your question in black and white because I can't. <laughs> First of all, I don't do this for the money. Um, although I, I need the money. I, I can't work for free because I, I need a job. Right. So this is my job, and uh, I work for myself. I, for the most part, never even look at the client's background. I don't care what they do. Often they tell me because in my line of work, I think there's a certain kind of cat who wants you to think he's maybe important because you know his name, but you don't know his background or his pedigree or how much he makes or how, how important and powerful he is in his like industry. So that stuff comes out. I don't care about any of that stuff. I, all I want to do is be left alone and make a frame. So it may or it may not be similar to what you experience with, you know, background information on words and uh but for me 
the best part of doing this, and I'm not sure that's the question you asked me, but the one I'm going to answer is that when you're finished, you can just basically pretend you you have like no life, you have no history, because the next day you come in and you line a bunch of stuff up on a clean workbench, and you look at it and you think of the possibilities because you haven't touched anything yet. Unlike the one that you did last week or the one that you did last month or like 10 years ago, you haven't fucked up yet. There's no mistakes. Nothing went sideways. Even when things go sideways and they fit within the quality level that you set for yourself or that standard that you try to work within, it's always something. But when 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 you're standing there and it's a new day, and everything is virgin and like sharp files and metal that hasn't been, you know, everything's new. It's like, oh my God, you know, this, this, this is the one, this is the one day that I'm going to get it right. And like that feeling is like 45 years or, and then some that, that, that has, that's the one, um, String uh, that has uh, that runs through everything I've ever done, um, and eventually, you know, you get to that point, like two hours or a day and a half into that, like next one that you thought was going to be the the one, and then you realize, hmm, I can't wait to finish this thing so I can start again, like next Tuesday, and like that's the one, and before you know it, you know, like forty six years passes. Wow. I I, yeah. I I get it. I, I hear what you're talking about. You know, it, it is that love of of beginning the work, but also just the love of the process itself uh, and always looking forward to the next thing. That's really cool. Yeah. Richard, thanks so much. I really appreciate this. It's been wildly entertaining and hopefully for our audience as well. OK, well, thanks for asking. And um, uh, I'll. I'll talk to you down the road or see you on the internet. Yeah, man. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. See ya. That was frame builder, Richard Sachs. To learn more about his work, you can check out his website at richardsachs.com or visit his Facebook page. That's it for our first episode of The Poll. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes. That will help get it noticed. Thanks for listening.